You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, good morning. Welcome to Kootenai Community Church Adult Sunday School. This is a Sunday school without a clock. So, yeah, oh, the, the official one is not there, so the official one is all that counts. Well, let's open in prayer. <laughs> Ron, Ron will be showing me his clock. Let's open in prayer. Father, Just we are so grateful for your word this morning again. Every day it brings light and joy to our lives. Because we see there your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see you. We see the Holy Spirit. We see the great unfolding of your plan for man. And Father, as we look into the word this morning in 2 Corinthians, we know you had a plan to bring many to Christ in that church in that day. And you have the same, same work today. Lord, we look to you for wisdom, for insight, for illumination. Give us, give us help this morning as we seek to obey your word, to love your, your son, and to live like those whom you have redeemed, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been a while since I've been here. I thought I put, might put a name tag on, but most of you remember, I think. Um, so when we were last together, we were in 2 Corinthians, and we finished on chapter 2, verse um, 13. So we'll do just a little bit of review. Um, Paul was concerned. Actually, why don't we read 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, um, we'll start at about verse 5 and read through the end of the chapter. Well, it's a short, ch- let's just read the whole chapter. It's a short chapter and it's a good one. Second Corinthians chapter 2, but Paul says, but I determined this for my own sake, speaking of, of what he said in verse 24 of chapter 1, not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers for you with your jo- with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. But he said, but I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you again in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? And this is the very thing I wrote you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. (laughs) For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven... If I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. 
Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So what we, we left off on, <clears throat> Paul wanted to make sure they understood that, that uh, Satan could take advantage of them if they, if they left things undone, if they left this, especially this one who needed to be forgiven and welcomed back into the fellowship, if they left him unwelcome. Satan could take advantage if they continued some of the silly and un, un, uh, wrong things that they were doing. Um, unforgiveness was his main concern. When we don't forgive one another, and we talked about that, looked at the three steps, or however many you want to fill in there, for forgiveness. Forgiveness is so very important in all of life. Without it, we don't get along. I know that seems like an obvious statement, but sometimes we don't think about that until we're in the thick of a relational crisis. And it's simply because often, often, how many times have we been in the middle of a relational crisis and we can't remember what started it? I can tell you numerous times, especially in my marriage, and generally I was wrong because a tree fell in the forest and no one was there to hear it. Okay, well, that, I'll, I'll work on my delivery. It took a second. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Satan would take advantage. He'll take advantage of us. He'll take advantage of anything who is unwilling to forgive. And so Paul was concerned about that in chapter 2, verse 11. But now he kind of takes a turn here. He's giving them some information. But have any of you ever heard an ambulance go by and you wondered if your kids were okay? I mean, that's, you know, there's, there's seven and a half billion people on the planet. And the ambulance goes by, but it is in our county. That's what was going on with Paul here. He says, I was in Troas, and I was preaching, and a door was open for me, but my spirit found no rest, and so I sent Timothy on ahead to find out about you. He was concerned about this church that he loved, about these people that he loved, about their need to forgive, about all the things that were going on. And uh, remember, he did get a good report back, although I'm jumping ahead to chapter 7, but, but we'll, uh, we'll see that when we get there. He said, I had no rest in my spirit in verse 13, find, not finding Titus my brother. Titus was supposed to bring him a report. He had gone ahead to Corinth and he was supposed to bring him a report. Titus wasn't there. His Nixle report wasn't there. <laughs> Someone knew who that was, yeah. <laughs> any rate, he, um, when you say culturally relevant things like that, you know, you, you kind of worry that everybody doesn't get it. But hey, you, you guys are good. He wasn't getting the information he needed to know that Corinth, it was okay. Things were okay in Corinth. He had done the visit, the severe letter, and some things that he was concerned. That's why he said, I won't come to, get to you again and cause sorrow. So then, so then now we're going to take kind of a turn. And this is an interesting section. Verse, chapter 2, verse 14. He says this, but thanks be to God. Paul is always thanking God, as we should, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifest through us, through us, and through us today, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. 
Here begins a section that some have thought was a different letter. And, and I studied this and looked at all the different opinions. And I mean, I'm no brain, but that's just a dumb thing to think. How do Paul's letters start? How do his letters start? Almost without exception. He says something like this. He'll say in 2 Corinthians, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ, of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, and all the saints who are throughout Asia. That's, that's a pretty general way that Paul introduces his letter. How does he end them? Let's look at the end of chapter of 2 Corinthians really quick. He, does, he says something like this in varying stages. He'll say, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He closes his letters in an obvious closing. Do you see that here? But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. And then he says, for we are a fragrance. And he goes on and he talks about some, some specific instances about how Christians are to be a witness to the world. Right in the middle of this, he didn't end here. <clears throat> he ended his letters in a distinct manner. He, he started them in a distinct manner. He also always began his letters with greetings and a pronouncement of grace and of peace of some sort. This is a continuation. There's nothing what, what, what's the new saying now? There's nothing here. Keep moving. Move along. It's still the same letter, 2 Corinthians. What happens here is this is a continuation of the letter, but here Paul, which is somewhat characteristic of him, he breaks into praise and thanksgiving to the great God who has delivered him and is in fact building his church against all the wiles of Satan and all the wiles of the world and against the flesh. There's a picture in Paul's mind as he pens this section. Um, As he pens this section, he be, he's thinking of something. And here's what he's thinking of. <laughs> there was an event that would happen in the Roman world upon a victory, a major victory in, in the military, a major military victory. And it was called a triumph. And so that's the word here, triumph. He leads us in triumph in Christ. In his mind, this was his, it was a significant event in the Roman world, especially in the military. Barclay describes it this way. Here's what he says. In Paul's mind, in his mind, was the picture of a Roman triumph and of Christ as a universal conqueror. The highest honor which could be given to a victorious Roman general was a triumph. To attain it, he must satisfy certain conditions. He must have been the actual commander-in-chief in the field. He, the campaign must have been completely finished. The region pacified and the victorious troops brought home, all significant. 5,000 of the enemy, at least, must have fallen in one engagement. A positive extension of territory must have been gained, and not merely a disaster retrieved or an attack repelled, and the victory must have been won over a foreign foe and not in a civil war. <coughs> in a triumph, the procession of the victorious general marched through the streets of Rome to the capital in the following order. 
First came the state officials and the Senate. Then came the trumpeters. Then were carried the spoils taken from the conquered land. For instance, when Titus conquered Jerusalem, the seven-branch candlestick, the golden table of the shewbread, and the golden trumpets were carried through the streets of Rome. Then came pictures of the conquered land and models of conquered citadels and ships. There followed the white bull for the sacrifice which would be made. Then there walked the captive princes, leaders and generals in chains, shortly to be flung into prison and in all probability almost immediately to be executed. Then came the lictors. Um, that would be like the secret service, the protectors of the magistrates and the officials that were in the procession. Bearing their rods, followed by the musicians with their lyres, then the priests swinging their censers, then the sweet smelling, with the sweet smelling incense burning in them. <laughs> After this came the general himself. He stood in a chariot drawn by four horses. He was clad in a purple tunic embroidered with golden palm leaves and over it a purple toga marked out with golden stars. In his hand, he held an ivory scepter with the Roman eagle at its top, and over his head, a slave held the crown of Jupiter. After him rode his family, and finally came the army. <laughs> the army, wearing all their decorations and shouting, low triumph, their cry of triumph. As the procession moved through the streets, all decorated and garlanded amid the cheering crowds, it made a tremendous day which might happen only once in a lifetime. This is the picture. That is the picture that's in Paul's mind. He sees Christ marching in triumph throughout the world and himself in that conquering train. It is a triumph which Paul is certain, is certain nothing can stop. And indeed, nothing can stop the triune God from conquering this planet. It's uncertain which caused this abrupt change where he goes from what seems to be um, didactic into this praise homily of, of the... Uh, the incredible awestruck, how awestruck he is by God. Most likely it is simple, the apostle focusing back from his troubles on the God of creation and recognizing that no matter the circumstances of life, God is always in control. That's not a cliche. It's just not a cliche. He is, there's never been an instance in the history of the universe where, where God spilled his coffee. I, I don't know how else to word it. He just, he's always perfectly in control, always sovereign always managing and careful to make certain that his particular sovereign plan goes forward. God is always in control. He jumps from discouragement to joy, recognizing that Christ always triumphs in every situation, no matter the outward appearance. He notes that the knowledge of Christ is manifested through believers, and that indeed, even through the believers in Corinth, even through the believers in Corinth, the most troubled church in all of the New Testament, probably. I mean, we don't know that for sure, but of the ones written about, it seems to be the most troubled one. <clears throat> and this is a delight to Paul. He's delighted by it, and it should be a delight to the Corinthians. Just as the priests in the temple carried censers, they're little, um, they look something like a lantern with a burning wick, and you would put this uh, incense in it, and it would, <laughs> it would light it, it would smolder, I guess. And the smoke that would come out actually, I guess, smelled pretty good. I've smelled some of them. Maybe it's just not in me to like smoke. But it smells like a glorified campfire to me. <clears throat> and I'd rather have the marshmallows. But anyway, these, they would carry these sensors. And these sensors spread a fragrance throughout the entire area, especially close in the streets. Now, it's hard to imagine... Maybe it isn't hard to imagine with some of what we've seen, but it's, it's, it would be something like a, a Super Bowl team. I, I know that's such a strange comparison, but returning to their home city. The city would all be out. They would all be admiring the conquering army. 
This is the picture in Paul's mind. And so this, these censers were spreading a fragrance, and Paul goes right into what the result would be. <clears throat> so God spreads the sweet smell of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the world, and how does he do that? Who is his smoke, if you will? We are the sweet fragrance, hopefully, of the gospel being spread throughout the world. Sometimes we're smoking people's eyes. Sometimes we are the, the one that lifts up their spirit. And we'll talk about that in a little bit here. So any comments or questions about verse 14? 15. For we... Ron has a question. Oh, they sacrificed to the gods. No, 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 no. It would have been a Roman, Roman priest, and the white bull was for sacrifice to one of the great, one of, whatever God provided the victory, they felt, or gods that provided the victory over the... F oh, uh, <laughs> you didn't say that out loud? <laughs> or you, when you said it out loud, you included Caesar in your statement? But yeah, no, they, they worshipped Jupiter and, and Zeus and... Zeus, however you pronounce it, and Thor and all of those. Not the Marvel gods, okay. But Stan Lee was born in the last century. He wasn't in Rome. Um, they worshipped a lot of, I mean, they had a pantheon of gods. Not like the Hindus, but a lot of them. And so the white bull and the priests and even the, the, um, the other, some of the other ones that were marching that, that did other things were involved in the sacrifice later on of the god, of the bull, to the god who provided the victory. So for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So now there's two classes of people in the world. <laughs> there are two types of people. You've heard that. There are three types. There really are. There are those whom God is saving and there are those who are perishing. There's the elect and the non-elect. And this discusses that. He says, we are a fragrance to Christ, of Christ, to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So we're a fragrance to God, and we're a fragrance to the world. As the priests walked along with the Roman triumph, diffusing the scent from the censers, the smell from the, the censers, from that incense, wafted throughout the crowd, especially, and everyone, especially those who were close, in the, and they could all smell it. <clears throat> in the same way, those who are both preaching and living the gospel disperse a, a metaphorical fragrance, if you will, both to the elect and to unbelievers. And what do we smell like to the world in a, in a proper sense? I took a shower this morning, so that's not what I'm referring to. Verse 16, to the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate to these things? Paul is always aware of his inadequacy, always, and, we'll, and I'll get to that. But to the conquered, to the conquered, the smell from the censors heralded death as those who had lost knew they were marching to their end. To the conquerors, however, that same smell, the very same smell, heralded triumph and reward. The death to death likely refers to the death of Christ, to the final and eternal death of those who reject the gospel. And from life to life refers to the resurrection of Christ, to the eternal, final eternal life and joy of those who have trusted in him by his, by his sovereignty. No one is adequate to bring this to pass, Paul is saying. No one, it's, it's almost like as, as if he's, he's seeing this in his mind, this great procession, and, and speaking from his heart about it. But he remembers, no one can do this. No one is adequate to this. Uh, 
And the question is rhetorical, intended to remind the Corinthians that the conquering and the final bliss that results from it is a gift from the Father, won through the triumph of the cross of Christ, that no human effort can nor ever will be involved. And that is a blow to the pride of man. We always want to say we did something. We didn't. We did nothing. All we did was everything we were ever designed to do from the fall of Adam, which was to sin continually and to seek darkness. And Christ changed some. And so those are a smell to the world, other believers of life to life, and a smell to the world of non-believers of death to death. You ever wonder why people who have, have are, are hate God hate you so much? You stink. You stink to them. It's, it's, it's an American colloquialism, but it's real. It's very real. Your heart is repulsive to them. Your thoughts, the things you say, some of them put up with it because you're family probably <laughs> or not, but some of them don't. And then when you go somewhere where there are other believers who you maybe not don't know their name and you get to talk and, and that smell is completely different. It's whatever, whatever reminds you of a good smell, roses or I've smelled flowers. I'm just not a flower guy. I'd rather smell coffee. Coffee. Bacon. And, and we laugh, but it, but it really is. It's, it's a delight to be among other like-minded believers. It's, even if you don't know them very well, there's a, there's a camaraderie, there's a, a, a joining that is just otherworldly, if you will. Brian, I see that. Yeah? And, and you'll notice, and I don't want to get off into politics, but that's a good point, left wing, right wing. But, but in the family of God, when the family of God is, is together and worshiping and serving God in the way they should, they have two effects on the world. To those who are the elect, they begin, the Spirit works on them and begins to change their mind and to regenerate them. To those who hate God, it has the opposite effect. It makes them hate you more. It makes them dislike you more. And they can't get away from you fast enough or do things to, to besmirch you effectively enough in their minds. It just would like, what they would like to do sometimes is probably illegal. And Peter, yes, right, yeah. <laughs> and, and Paul talks about that. It's, and, and some of the commentators, and I'll get to those too, but, but yes, it, the stink that causes them dismay should be, and I know this sounds weird, but it should be the stink, if you will, of the gospel that they hear and not our improper living. Um, and and. Well, I don't want to steal my own thunder. We'll get to that. <laughs> so, uh, verse 17. For we, Paul says, are not like many, peddling the word of God. Do you know anybody nowadays that peddles the word of God? Or was that exclusively a first century problem? Pardon me? They're on TV every, every day now. Used to, used to be they confined them to the prison of Sunday, but now it's, they're on all the time. I don't have a TV, so I don't see him. That's okay. I'm not interested. But So he says, we are not like many. And this is many back then. Many, many right at the beginning of the church. Peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, as from God, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Peddling is a, a word that comes to be... Now, don't take this bad for those of us that are retails, but it means to be a retailer. <laughs> in a negative... <laughs> Okay, okay, I'll change my profession. Yeah. 
I'm going to become a faith healer. Um, The wrong kind of profit. The wrong kind of profit. They're peddlers. They want to make money by selling anything. And they'll, they'll, they'll bend and twist and shape the message to whatever, whatever shape and form it needs to earn them the most income, whether it be money or power or, or praise. It's sorted. Go ahead, Pat. It, it can be. I, that's not here, but, but filthy lucre is a, is a good... It's in the thesaurus, the Greek thesaurus, right next to it, I think. What would they say in Greek? They wouldn't call it a thesaurus because that, well, at any rate. Uh, to trade in the word of God, not to preach it, to give it out without cost as the jewel that it is that's free to whoever will ever receive it as they are, as they are regenerated by the spirit, but to peddle it, to get, I'll give you this if you give me some of yours. Send a dollar in the mail and I'll send you a handkerchief that I sweat it on. You know, that kind of stuff just stinks, right? Kind of, the wrong kind of stink. To try to get base gain, base gain by teaching divine truth to corrupt, to adulterate. They were in the habit of adulterating their commodities for the sake of gain. They would cut their pure water with fake water and bottle it up and call it pure water. And it was false. The idea here is one of spiritual con men. Paul spoke powerfully, inspired by the Holy Spirit and motivated only by the gospel. He was not like those who adulterated the message, changed it, and made it more palatable in some cases in order to win people's confidence and built them of their money their possessions, and their praise. We don't, well, Paul was sincere and transparent, while the false apostles, especially those super apostles that will come later in this epistle that he talks about in chapters 10 and through 13, they were more interested in the revenue that the gospel can bring. Their message will not be the unadulterated truth of the pure gospel, but rather a message designed to elicit followers, power, and money. Their focus will be on themselves and their lifestyles, not on getting the gospel to as many people as possible without taking advantage of those who are being served. They will adulterate the message of one man, one woman. They will adulterate the message of preaching the gospel for free. They will adulterate the message of fill in the blank. Whatever it takes, they'll, they'll con conform themselves to the world in order to keep followers that is not what the gospel does. I'm sorry, but the gospel, the gospel is a sword. It divides when it's preached properly. And it should divide. It should divide truth from error. It should divide those who love God from those who hate God. And as long as we're living it, then we may be a part of doing that. But we may also be a part of the positive aspect, which is to join back to the church those who are the elect, those who are waiting to hear that preached word. Who will hear if there is no preacher? That preached word so that they can trust God. So, chapter 2 takes us through Paul's determination not to cause more sorrow to the Corinthians by coming to them with a difficult message. <laughs> the Corinthians still have much to do and much to learn, and he believed that a letter, again, would suffice. He references the severe letter, which we talked about, which is lost for reasons that only God, the Lord knows. Therefore, it is not Scripture. If someone ever comes up with that letter, it would be something like, um, you know, it would just, it's not Scripture. It, it was for some reason the Lord kept that from us, and that's fine. 
He encourages the Corinthians to stop the punishment of one who had repented and to reaffirm their love for him, for this one who had repented. Reaffirm their real love for him. Paul clearly chooses the high road and does not take what was done personally, even though it was done to him and against him. But he commends the sinner to the Corinthians as a new brother or a returned, restored brother. His concern for the Corinthians knew no bounds. Even with an open door in Macedonia, doing what Paul loved the best to do, to preach the gospel, his concern with the Corinthians caused him to have his spirit unable to rest. His spirit was unable to rest, and so he went in search of Titus, looking for a, a report on the church at Corinth. The report Titus does give was positive and an encouragement to Paul. He finishes chapter 2 by reminding the Corinthians that he and they are a blessing to those who have trusted Christ, but a curse to those who have not. It is well to remember this, that the gospel of Christ is the most polarizing message the world has ever seen. Those whom God is bringing into his kingdom will at some point receive it with joy and will continue to love it. Those who are, who are and will continue to be the enemies of God will hate it with the hatred of hell itself. And, and that is how, as how it should be. Any questions or comments about that or, or chapter 2? We're going to actually get started in chapter 3 with your permission. Jim. Yes, same fragrance. Same word. <laughs> you can hide their, their I, let me give you a little help here, Jim. What you do is you hide their name by saying, I don't know their name, but their initials are Aiden or something like that. Yeah. And that's a good point. And it's when the gospel is preached unadulterated, it has the same smell. It has the same truth. It has the same veracity. It has the same life-saving, eternity-producing results. But to the ones that hate it, it is an eternity-producing result in the lake of fire. To the ones that love it, it is an eternity-producing result in heaven with God and the saints and the angels. And I, that's a good, good and, and that was basically Peter's affirmation too, that the gospel smells the same. Let's not let our unwashed Bodies get smell get in the way of it. Our unwashed works, I should say, get in the way of it. I saw a hand. Run. Right. 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 And sometimes um, it's it's remarkable how easily we think we can uh, just do a little twist here and and it'll make it more acceptable to people. No. Yeah. Yeah. The gospel is the gospel, and we need to make sure that we are getting it right. Nathel. It's a remarkable thing that God can do in the life of a believer. Um, there'll be times when I've, I've talked with men who worked among drunken sailors, if you will, and when they came into the room, the language changed. That's interesting. And sometimes not anything, there was never an exchange of words, just the language changed. It, it wasn't like people say, oh, so-and-so here, clean up your language. It was just a, they had been amongst each other long enough to know that there's a different fragrance coming into this room. And, and it's an amazing thing that there's some vestige. No, men are completely depraved. Don't misunderstand me. But there's some vestige of recognizing that. And, and God, it, God will be sovereign. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. Peter, subjective. The word of God. That's a good point. Analogies always break down. But, but it, the key words in some of this would be the word knowledge and then from sincerity without wax. The Latin without wax. 
the, the, the gospel has nothing added or taken away from it. We should add nothing or take something away from it. It's that pure knowledge that the world needs, both to condemn those that are going to hell and to, to save those who are going to heaven. Brian, I see. And him crucified. And the power of God is the gospel. Mm-hmm. Let's not hide it. And that's what he's telling the Corinthians. Who is adequate to this? Only Christ. Only Christ. Only the Holy Spirit. Only the Father. So we're going to, we got a little bit of time. We got five minutes. We can at least introduce, introduce chapter three. So in chapter two, Paul asked the question in verse 16, and who is adequate to these things? It is the things of God that no man is adequate in. The things of the Spirit and of eternal life are far beyond what man can do. No one has any adequacy at all in these things. In chapter 3, he begins to answer that question by verifying that the man whom God has called, he will equip and prepare to be adequate in proclaiming the gospel, the true gospel. Paul does not need commendation. His commendation is the lives of those who have been changed by the gospel forever that he preached. His confidence is in Christ. And in this chapter, he begins to, to display that to the Corinthians. The Old Testament ministry of death was replaced with the New Testament ministry of life and of the Spirit. It is the law that confronts us with our wickedness and condemns us to death. It is the Spirit who regenerates us, turns our heart to Christ, and gives us the faith to believe in him. Paul will teach in this chapter that the Israelites without Christ still have a veil over their face and that only the Spirit of the Lord can take that veil away. This chapter begins to detail what a minister of Christ does. Are there any ministers of Christ in this room? Let me start counting them. One, two, three, four. There's about 50 of you. I just happen to be up here because I'm, I don't know why I'm up here. There's many of you that should be up here. But the minister of Christ is those who have been changed by the word of God and brought from death to life. So this chapter begins to detail what a minister of Christ does. As always, Paul will direct the glory and the praise to the Father. So we've got time to get maybe through one or two verses. Let's look at the first one. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Somebody must have accused him of that. Or do we need as some letters of commendation by to you or from you? As Paul considered what to say to the Corinthians, weighing the balance of the need to communicate that he was a true apostle of God and his words were directly from the Holy Spirit, against the problem of looking like he was elevating himself, he uses a phrase that would have been familiar to anyone from the early centuries of the Greek and Roman world. Often, if someone was going into a new community, they would bring with them letters of commendation from someone familiar to that community. Barclay references a letter, one such letter. There's peddling that should have been earlier. <laughs> Here is such a letter, he says, Barclay says, found among the papyri written by a certain Aurelius Archelaus who was a beneficarius, that is, a soldier privileged to have special exemption from all menial duties to his commanding officer, a military, tri a military tribune called Julius Domitius. As it is to introduce and commend a certain theon, to Julius Domitius, military tribune of the legion from Aurelius Archelaus, his beneficarius, greeting. I have already before this recommended to you Theon, my friend, and now also I ask you, sir, to have him before your eyes as you would myself. 
For he is a man such as to, to deserve to be loved by you, for he left his own people, his goods and his business, and followed me, and through all things he has kept me safe. I therefore pray you that he may have the right to come and see you. He can tell you everything about our business. I have loved the man. I wish you, sir, great happiness and long life with your family and good health. Have this letter before your eyes and let it, and let it make you think that I am speaking to you. Farewell. There's also an example, a part, partial example of such a letter in Romans chapter 16, where Paul says, um, in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centrea that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has been a helper of many and of myself as well. Paul did not need to commend himself, nor did he need the commendation of others. And it is apparent that he is also here taking a side swipe at those who apparently came to Corinth with letters of commendation, likely from the Sanhedrin. These would have been the Judaizers who were trying to impose the law of Moses on the Christians there. So as he opens this chapter, he's beginning to address some of the issues, some more of the issues that are going on. You know, I read in numerous places that, that this is not a doctrinal letter. And I thought, are they reading the same letter? This is suffused with marvelous doctrine. And it's, it's a kind of doctrine that comes from the life of Paul, the heart of Paul, the Holy Spirit teaching it through that. It's, isn't it, I don't want to go too far again with this, but that's that fragrance that comes from a life lived in obedience to the word of God. So here's, we're going to end with this. Paul says, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Paul's love for the Corinthians comes through here. They were not just people to him. They were not just converts. They were not just evangelical numbers. They were living, breathing examples of the work that he had poured into them out of the love he had for both the Lord Jesus Christ and for those who lived in Corinth. He did not need a letter of commendation, nor did he, nor should he have had to have one by any stretch of the imagination in that Corinthian church. For the Corinthians themselves, who had trusted Christ because of the gospel message Paul had brought to them, they were his letters of commendation. More than one, probably hundreds of letters of commendation. They were saved and they were being sanctified day by day this was a living letter. When we say that the scripture is living, we mean it in a different way than we say the Constitution is not living. Men can't do what God can through his word. There are those who think the Constitution is, is, is inspired. It's not. It's got mistakes. It's a human document. It's the best one we've ever come up with in six millennia of governments, but it's a man-made instrument, and it's pretty good. The gospel, the word of God, is perfect, needing no addition and no subtraction. You'll notice that there's no provision for amendment in the book of Revelation. You don't amend something that's perfect. And so, I got off on a rabbit trail there. This was a living letter. These people were living letters, changed by the living word of God from death to life and beginning to live different lives, beginning to emit, beginning to affect the world in different ways. They had far more impact than something on parchment. These people were sealed in Paul's heart, and he has, he has as much said so in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as he was again defending his apostleship, and he explained to the Corinthians that their very lives were his seal of apostleship. If he had a medal, if you... 
another analogy, but if he had a medal on his, it would have been a picture of the Corinthian believers, a, a group picture. They were his medal, if you will. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 2, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So, what's our takeaway from this this morning? <laughs> the fragrance of the gospel is all that's necessary to move people who are going to be believers into the kingdom of light. And it is all that's necessary to confirm those who hate God. The gospel itself is the only thing through the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people that is adequate to the task of changing men and women. We are not. So when you live your life out, as you are living your life out, and you think sometimes you're having an effect, you're not having an effect. For lack of a better way to communicate it, behind the scenes, the Word of God is working miracles every day. Live faithful. He is telling the Corinthians, live faithfully to the Word. We're not peddling to you some strange, adulterated message. We're giving you the pure Word of God. So check out what your teachers are telling you. Verify on your own, because you have the same Spirit of God from the pages of Scripture that the truth is being proliferated in this church and in our world, in this niche of this part of the world that's ours. It is a living letter. It is written on the hearts of living believers, and it is changing their lives every day. The Corinthians were having that happen, and sometimes they were kicking and screaming. You ever kick and scream when God has to remove stuff from your life? Yeah, well, that's, that's okay. I wish I didn't. I wish I was more noble. I wish I was more adequate, but uh, the gospel is adequate. Let's end with that. Thank you, Lord, that every adequacy that is necessary comes through the scripture, through the word of God, that the life of Christ himself communicated to us in these pages is the change agent, if you will, through the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of men and women who are being converted to the, to the Lord. And so as we, as we live our lives out, Lord, let us, as has been talked about here this morning, not let ourselves get in the way of the purity of the gospel, but study it diligently so that we understand when we need to be corrected and reproved and, and built up so that we can do the same for others. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its continued incredible work in our lives and in the lives of others who are coming to know you. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.